Good morning. Uh, my name is Peter, and uh, before I speak, I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Where is Marianne? There she is. Um, the first thought that came to my mind when I think about, when I think about Marianne is uh, that she hugs me every week. And not one of those like shoulder Christian hugs. This is like full-on secular hug, and I love it. It just gives me exactly what I need after the sermon and putting myself out there. She embraces me, and I have no idea if she liked the sermon or the service or what's going on, but the hug is there. And so, Mary, thank you for that. Come on up and tell us a story. Good morning. My name is Mary Ann Dawson, and I'm one of the senior members here. I think I've been a member here since 1957. And whoa. <laughs> I'm going to just tell a little story about one of my um, six sons, number three. His name is Peter, also, another Peter. Um, I've been asked to tell this story, and that's why I'm doing that this morning. <clears throat> it was the spring of 1977. Graduation was just around the corner. <clears throat> and my third son, Peter, I have six sons, was eager to get off for the state track meet that weekend. <clears throat> he was supposed to have won the state title for the high jump. I believe he still holds the record at six feet nine inches. But first, he wanted to stop by the big sneak um, party that the seniors have, and it was near Bremerton. He took a new um, motorbike that I had given him, <coughs> excuse me, along with him. I didn't know about this, so I was, in, I was really shocked to get a call that evening from one of my husband's partners. I was attending a Christian Medical Society meeting at the Thompson's home, and my husband was on his way to a medical meeting in Spokane, stopping overnight at his sister's home in Kashmir. I was completely shocked when his partner told me that Peter had been in a terrible accident near Bremerton, and that he was in surgery at a Bremerton hospital. In fact, the way he talked, I wasn't sure Peter was going to live. I called Bud Palmberg, our former pastor, and my second son, Mark, and we caught the last ferry before midnight to Bremerton. It was a long, quiet, painful ride. We drove to the hospital to find that Peter was in surgery and would be all night. A plastic surgeon worked on him until early morning. <clears throat> The story was that Peter had been at the party about half an hour and was slowly driving his bike down a side road. Two boys were racing their bikes toward him. And as they neared a large mound of dirt, the bike hit this mud and the boy flew off the bike and his motorbike flew into the air. But as it came down, the motorized part of the bike hit Peter right in his face, splitting it wide open. One eye was already gone, and his teeth were in his throat. P 
People quickly came and rushed him to the hospital, but it took the group two hours to get to find it along the way because they couldn't find it. And he almost choked to death several times. <clears throat> when they finally located the hospital, the intern at the emergency room almost fainted when he saw him, not knowing what to do. They quickly called a plastic surgeon and went right to surgery. I called my husband, and he and his sister immediately left to return to Seattle and, and Bremerton. It was a long and painful night as we waited for word from surgery. Early in the morning, I stepped outside to see the sunrise, and I thought, he'll never see the sun come up again. It was finally, uh, he was finally out of surgery and put into a room. They said I could go in to see him, and when I did, he looked like someone from outer space. The only part of his head that I could see was his mouth. I almost lost it when he said, hi, mom. I became so nauseated I had to leave the room, and outside I sobbed and sobbed, and four nurses came up and held me. One of them said, you're going to have to be very strong for him. My husband finally arrived, talked to the surgeon, arranged for an ambulance, uh, and arranged for an ambulance to take him to Swedish Hospital in the morning, where he would be for the next month. There he began a series of operations and eye work that would go on for years. The hospital room was filled with his friends coming and going. All the rules were quickly bent. He was an athlete and very popular. So many people and his high school friends, they just came and went day and night. In two weeks, he was determined to go to his graduation service at the Opera House. So they loaded him up with morphine and took him in a wheelchair to the graduation services. And by this time, he had lost 30 pounds and was wearing a halo above his head with four prongs placed into his skull to bring his teeth back into position. One of his good friends accompanied him to the stage where he stood with his arms upraised and with his finger in a V position. People clapped for about two or three minutes as I sobbed and prayed. It would be an encouragement for the long days ahead. <clears throat> I took care of him at home for a year, in and out of surgeries, and his friends came and went. Next came nine months at the Commission for the Blind on South Rainier, where he would learn to live as a blind person. He finally felt ready to enter the University of Washington, and there are so many amusing stories during his time of training before school started. <clears throat> he made many friends there, and one dear teacher made him a relief map, map so that he would know how to navigate the campus. He had wanted to be a pilot, and had been accepted into the Naval Flight Program at Pensacola, Florida. So his plans totally turned around and changed. He graduated from the university with honors and decided to go to law school. Upon graduation, he worked as a lawyer after graduation for 11 years, and then he decided to change careers. He entered the State University of California at San Diego for a master's degree in rehabilitative counseling. 
There he met a lovely girl who would become his wife at a beautiful wedding in downtown San Diego. She, too, had almost lost her life in a terrible car accident, so they had a lot in common. And they were blessed with a darling little daughter, now almost 13 years old. <clears throat> Peter and his daughter are very bonded, and he still talks with her and prays with her every evening before bed bedtime, at bedtime. Peter is now the district administrator for blind field services for the California Department of Rehabilitation in San Diego. I've got to get that straight. He speaks to groups including his daughter's school and travels frequently in his work. He meets many wonderful people on trains and planes, and he loves trains especially. He will always be a people person. He has uh, made uh, special friends in taxis, in, in Ubers, in airports, hotels, restaurants, among other things. And at one, at one hotel, there's a, a doorman who sees him coming and picks him up and hugs him. He's six feet three, but he loves seeing him come. Anyway, through all of this, God has been with us and helped us, and we praise him today. And I think it shows you can plan one thing, but your whole life may turn around with, with an incident like this. This morning, I'm very happy to have three of my sons out of the six here with me. Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of 3 John, smallest book in the, in the Bible. And I'll be reading from the 3 John, verses 2 to 4, in the New American Standard Bible. If you want to um, follow along in your Bible or use the screens. Second through the fourth verse. Beloved, I pray in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you were walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And I have that in a frame on my wall. I love that verse. Thank you. Today we're going to conclude our series called True. We've been in this series through the book of 2 John and through 3 John. And today we conclude this series with a sermon titled, Your Truth. Your Truth. Now, this is not a statement uh, that I made up. It's in the passage that Marianne read for us. Uh, John talks about your truth and how we are to walk in the truth, but it's not just in the truth, it's walking in your truth. And when you walk in your truth, John says there is joy for all. There's a kind of flourishing that happens. He actually gets a little bit uh, health and wealth, prosperity gospel on us, and he uses words like uh, prosper and health, not just of the soul, but also of the body. There is a health and prosperity promised to those who will walk in 
your truth and their truth. And this isn't about relativism, but it's speaking to God's masterful ability to apply truth exactly the way it needs to be applied to each individual person. So here is the truth, and God says, let's figure out together with patience and acceptance, because I'm not threatened, and I'm not losing hope, I'm hopeful. Let's figure out how to apply the truth to your life. God is able to meet us exactly where we are at. You know, it's an interesting thing because in our society, we have this phrase called love is blind. And the idea there is that you see one crazy person and they're in love with another crazy person who is in love back with that crazy person. And then we conclude love must be blind because if it wasn't, how in the world could that happen? Right? So we think love sees less. But what we see in scripture actually is the opposite. That love actually is founded on not blindness, but seeing more, understanding more. And so we have examples like the woman at the well. Jesus is able to love this woman and meet her exactly where she's at, not because he doesn't know who she is. In fact, he rattles off her life resume. Oh, you have been with these people, and this is your issue, and I understand you. I get you. I see you. I know your story. And demonstrating that he loves her because he knows her better than anyone. He's not turning his eyes away from her story. He's embracing it. He enters into it, engages it, and save her where she's, saves her where she's at. We see that with the rich young ruler. We see that with lepers. We see that in every encounter of Jesus ever, that he knows his subjects. And that's why, you know, we've experienced some version of this. You know, if somebody were to criticize your child, you come to their defense. It's not because you don't know your children. It's because you know your children. You know their story. You know their weaknesses. You know about all the intricacies and the nuances and the quirks that make them who they are. And so you love them, right? Same thing with God. So your truth, as it's used in 3 John today, is not relativism, but it's customization of truth. It's not dilution, but application. It's God who understands the spirit of the truth and is able to fill in our personality and sequence and timing and all those other customizing factors that we need for us to experience life from that truth. So that's the passage. That's God. Tell you a story about this. Uh, This is not my story. This is Sarah Bessie's story. She's an author. And she tells this story about something that I think uh, we could all relate to. She says this. When it comes to conviction... I have found the spirit to be gentle but relentless. Change and transformation is an ongoing process. I am always grateful how the spirit isn't harsh or overwhelming, but rather how at the right time and in the right moment, we know it's time to change. 
we begin to sense that this thing that used to be okay is no longer okay. The thing that used to mean freedom has become bondage. The thing that used to signal joy has become a possibility of sorrow. The thing that used to mean nothing has become something and perhaps everything. Or at least that's what happened to me. It was fine. Everything was fine. And then I knew it wasn't going to be fine for much longer. And I fought it with my reason. Oh, I had all the excuses for why I could keep enjoying my wine in the evenings. Oh, now you're interested, right? <laughs> I work hard. I give so much. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm never hungover. It doesn't affect my life. It's social. It's fun. It's in the Bible, for pity's sake. But still, I sense the spirit, infinite patience and rueful love, waiting for me to trust the invitation as I defiantly poured another glass of wine. I began to be haunted by the writer of Hebrews who said, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I began to wonder why I was resisting throwing off the quote-unquote weight of alcohol, why I was so determined to keep running my race with this habit that had begun to feel so heavy. This has been the source of a lot of transformation in my life. Something that was okay suddenly becomes not okay. And inside of that, there is an invitation to more shalom, more peace, more hope, more love, more trust, more wholeness. It's never about deprivation. It's about becoming who we were meant to be all along. The pressing of God's thumb has felt like the hand of a massage therapist to someone with knots in their back. Here is the knot, the pressure point, the source of the pain. And the pressing perhaps feels more like more pain until suddenly it feels like release and exhale and movement. Yes, God's thumb had come down on my drinking, and I was wriggling under the weight, resisting and bargaining and excusing. I think that conviction has gotten a bit of a bad rep in the church over the past little while. It's understandable. We have an overcorrection to a lot of the legalism and boundary marker Christianity that damaged so many. The behavior modification and rulemaking and imposition of other people's convictions onto our own souls. But in our steering away from legalism, I wonder if we left the road to holiness or began to forget that God also cares about what we do and how we do it and why. Conviction is less about condemnation than it is about invitation. It's an invitation into freedom. It's an invitation into wholeness. Sarah Bessie's story uh, is a stand-in. So it's a holding place for your own story. And I think we all have things like this, things that are innocent enough on their own, and they're fine, they were great for a season, but at some point it's run its course and we begin to feel it. And then we start engaging in it less with enjoyment, more with struggle. And then it becomes heavy, it becomes like a weight. And then our need to justify that thing in our life becomes greater than the enjoyment of that thing. And then we have to start engaging uh, you know, every faculty we have to figure out why is this thing bothering me? 
We have felt these things in our life, I think. For Sarah, it was alcohol, and uh, it really does seem innocent enough. But I want to give you a formula that I think uh, really is helpful for me. So there's the truth. And then that truth has to become your truth. It has to be personalized, customized to you, who you are and where you're at and why, the season of life, the place you're in. And when that happens, you begin to experience the truthfulness of the truth. And then you say, my goodness, it is true. But it's not because it was objectively true first, but it's because it was able to be personalized to you. And then you experience the truthfulness of it. And when you do that, when this process is there, truth becoming your truth, then experiencing the truthfulness of it, then it's not punishing, it's not legalistic, it's not external, it's not shallow. It becomes spirit-filled. It becomes life-giving, and you discover love within that truth. You discover the truth in love. And as you begin to apply this new, discovered, newly applied truth to your life, it leads to life and to, to the flourishing of it. Now, the Bible's word for this process, truth, your truth, truthful, is what's called conviction. Conviction. And I want to give you a descriptor of conviction that's been helpful for me. I heard it uh, 24 years ago. I still remember it. And the man whose lips uttered the, this descriptor is Ravi Zacharias. I heard him on the main stage in Urbana. I was desperately trying to win my wife, Susie, over to my side. And I was praying only about Susie, nothing about the conference content, which is about missions. And then he said this, and I had a conviction about Susie. He said a conviction is this. A conviction is not an opinion that you hold on to, but it is a truth that holds on to you. And then I said, dear God, I've been trying to get rid of the Susie thing, but I can't. It must be a conviction from you. It must be your will. I must tell Susie it's God's will that she bent to my will. I really was thinking some version of that thought. So my, my uh, best metaphor for conviction is the frog. And I've, I've talked about this frog before, but uh, it's so fascinating. I reread the article, and I did further research on the nature of the frog's saliva, which is a non-Newtonian fluid. It's just fascinating to me. I never knew what non-Newtonian was until the viral videos that some of you may have seen on the internet where there's a pool of milky white water and then if you step into it, you sink because it's water. But then if you start back a ways and you start running and in faith you just run onto the water, it holds up your weight and you can run across the entire pool walking on water. It's because what's in the pool is a non-Newtonian fluid. It hardens when there's pressure at a certain applied at a certain rate. And uh, frog saliva is similar. It's non-Newtonian. 
Uh, and what that means is the saliva is just like saliva. It's water and liquid, and it fills whatever container you pour it into. And so the frog shoots out its very soft tongue covered in this non-Newtonian fluid, and then it hits, it strikes the prey. And the prey is covered with cracks and crevices and just, you know, parts of it that go into the creature itself, and the fluid instantly fills it. And then this is where it gets interesting. And then suddenly, as the frog tries to pull its tongue back, it creates pressure, right? Because there's cohesive bonding. There's, bonds, there's bonding within the saliva. But when the tongue is pulling back, it hardens instantly. And now this little bugger, this bug, is caught. All the cracks and all the crevices of its body, it's filled with this like plaster-like substance now, which is attached firmly to the tongue. And the tongue pulls back. The bug has no chance of release and gets sucked into the frog's mouth. Fascinating. That's conviction. <laughs> Truth applied to your personal cracks and crevices. It just works its way in. It's not just the truth, but as it gets applied to you, it fills who you are and how you are. It knows exactly with precision, with timing. And then at the right moment, it grips, it hardens around you, and you cannot escape. It is holding on to you now personalized. Truth becomes your truth. What are you going to do? What can you do when you're gripped with truth? When you know that you know that you know that you know. What do you do? How can you get out from under it? It's holding on to you. It's stronger than you. It's better than you, smarter than you, bigger than you. What can you do? Now, listen to the verse again that Marianne read for us. Beloved, I pray that in all respects, this is God's will for us, that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. God wants that for us. No unnecessary suffering allowed in God's kingdom. That's true. That part is true. Just as your soul tr prospers. That's implying it's not just the soul, but it's your body, your whole life, your being, your existence. God wants you to prosper, flourish. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. Now, what's John saying here? The reason for all of this flourishing in body and soul in your life is because there is a way that you are in your truth. You're not resisting. You're not fighting. But you have uh, submitted to it. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, if you are parents or you have loved ones, you know how much joy it gives you when you see rightness 
in the lives of those you love. That's what John is saying here. When you are able to take truth and make it your truth and exercise and live out the integrity of truth in your life, there is not just a prospering, a flourishing for you, but a communal joy that the body you're connected to experiences together. So there's a way the whole of the body of Christ can flourish and be joyful together when truth becomes your truth and you're walking in integrity, in the integrity of that truth. That's the map, the reality that John lays out for us. Let's consider the alternative and we begin to understand why you personally walking in truth is so important, not just for you, but for everyone connected to you. Okay, the alternative of walking in truth, of truth becoming your truth, is what I will call denial. So there is a truth. It's gripping you. It's beginning to fill in the cracks and crevices of your life, but you're resisting it. Denial. What happens in denial? The first step to resisting truth is active rationalization. You have to start doing some serious thinking to deny what's happening to you. All right? I don't think I have to explain that one further. Second, then, you have to start hardening your heart or your conscience because it's too much. You have to shield yourself away from the light. Third, you have to start doing mental gymnastics. Your mind has to become distorted to make sense of the thing that does not make sense anymore. And then you engage in what I would call denial behavior. Denial behavior is behavior you have to engage in to prove to yourself that there is no conviction coming on you. Now, I want to give an example here, and it's the best example I have, but it's a little bit of an adult theme, and so just warning, I'm going to try to stay as, as uh, you know, appropriate as possible, but I don't want you to miss the reality of this, okay? So I had a pastor that I loved and worshipped in college. His name was Mike. I've talked about him before. And this is a public thing, so uh, we're good to talk about it. And he's talked about it publicly many, many times. He had an affair for a number of years when he was my pastor. And I was devastated. I was devastated. I was very much uh, uh, in, in sort of in admiration of him. And I would say he is the primary reason I went into the ministry and straight from my uh, uh, medical pathway that I was on when I first met him. And I was devastated, and I had lots of personal conversations with him. After I graduated from college and I, was, I became a pastor, uh, I invited him out two different years to be a retreat speaker for the church that I was uh, pastoring at the time. And so I got to have lots of one-on-one -on -one time with him, and I said, I said, Mike, tell me everything. Tell me exactly how you got from A to B. I want to know because I don't want to ever do that. So tell me the nitty-gritty. Tell me what's going on in your head. And you know how I can be very investigative and direct. And so I went for it with Mike, and he said, here it is. And he told me this. He was, she was a woman that he was 
uh, counseling, and he can feel the bond growing stronger and stronger, and he can feel the role reversals that were happening, like flashes of role reversal, where he would just lean on her a little bit instead of she looking to him for, for support. It started becoming more and more mutual, and he knew it. That was sign number one. And then sign number two, he began to want to meet with her more and more. But he started doing the active rationalization. He started hardening his conscience. He started having to distort his mind and his thinking. And then finally, he had to engage in denial behavior. And what that meant is he would feel like he shouldn't meet with her. But in order to prove that there was actually nothing going on, what did he do? He met with her. And then there, sometimes they would have emotionally intense conversations. She was going through a really hard time in life. And then he would feel like she needed a hug. And then she would, he would give him a hug and she would want the hug. And she, hugging became a thing that was normalized between those two. But he had a, a, a conscience about it. But in order to be in denial about the fact that anything might be happening, he had to keep hugging her. Because why would he stop? If he stops hugging her, that means something was there. But he couldn't admit to that. He had to be in denial about that. So he had to keep hugging. And then the hugs started getting longer. But he had to be in denial about that. So what did he do? He had no choice but to let the hugs get longer. And then you have to start over again and go back to active rationalization. Then he had to harden his heart. And then he had to distort his thinking. And then he had to engage in more denial behavior until one day it erupted in a full-blown affair. And then he had to rationalize that. And then harden his heart around that. And then distort his thinking around that. And then engage in more denial behavior. He came to a place where he felt he deserved to be with her. He has a long story. He was part of actually a very controlling Christian group that doesn't exist anymore. It's called Maranatha uh, back in the uh, Midwest. And they chose a wife for him. And so just randomly, two people from across the house, and he had never even met her. They had never talked. And they were told it was God's will for them to marry. So he had this whole other story for why he deserved to actually love someone because he never learned to love his wife. And, and then life just sort of took over and ministry and it gained its own momentum. You know, it becomes bigger than you at some point, And it just goes like a flywheel. And then all along, there was this heart that was void and empty and desirous. And then he met this woman, and there it goes. So the final stage is called the death spiral. Rationalization, hardening of the heart, distorting of the mind, denial behavior, and then you go back to one, and that's the spiral. You keep doing this over and over again until before you know it, you're thinking, what have I done? What happened? How did I get here? Well, you got here one step at a time. Should we count the steps? And these will be the steps. So that's alternative number one. Okay, if you don't walk in your truth, you are walking in some version of 
this. There's no third way. It's A or B. This is a zero-sum game. Okay, alternative number two. Uh, some of you may be aware of this, but there's a whole body of science now uh, based on this psychiatrist's work. Uh, I'm not going to try to say his name. Bessel van der Kolk, I think. Van der Kolk. He has a book called Body Keeps a Score, and he talks about how every bit of trauma in our, in our life, whether it's like big trauma happens once or it's just repetitive trauma, little things, you know? like a boss who's not nice to you, but it's like every day for 12 years, you have trauma about that, you know? And so you develop a kind of a preemptive emotional reaction. Before you even interact with your boss, you think about your boss and you start having the feelings. You know, your body starts the mechanism and, uh, you know, the first domino just falls, right? And uh, he says that your body is, has perfect memory for every single trauma in your life. And so he talks about your hormone levels. You know, so he talks about cortisol. Cortisol is your stress hormone. And how if you have uh, like a stress response, over time, it just, you just respond with more cortisol unnecessarily. And he even talks about the love handle, how the particular love handle is like, you have extra cortisol in your body, and your body type and your you know, weight ratio, you shouldn't have that kind of love handle, but you do because your body keeps the score. You have extra cortisol causing you to carry fat in the form of a love handle. Isn't that interesting? Or he talks about how if you get your heart broken, people, when that's unresolved, will literally begin to curl their physical shoulders around their heart. And they will talk to people differently. Instead of facing them head on, they may, you know, uh, practice body language. They cover their, you know, chest like this with their arms crossed. Or their shoulders physically curl around their heart in an attempt to protect their heart. Or they turn their body away from whoever they're talking to. Your physical body, the way it looks, your posture, your hormone. The way your muscles and your ligaments and tendons are all sort of loose or tight in different parts. Your body keeps the score. Brain, little pathways formed inside your brain because of trauma that your body remembers forever. And when you're not walking in the truth, that's the alternative. But when you start living in the truth and you start owning the convictions in your life, your body physically begins to change and open up. You know, Sarah in the beginning talked about how God's work is like a, the thumb of a, a massage therapist. Turns out it's scientifically true that it, as God begins to massage you and your conscience, things get released, toxins get released, literal and metaphorical toxins get released. Your posture changes. You know, you ever have experiences where sometimes you see somebody, you don't know anything about them, just met them, but you feel like, oh, there's, they, look, they just look dark. I don't know why. You know, you're kind of able to read people. I don't think it's like perfect science, obviously. We're biased, and we may be engaged in our own denial behavior, which is why we're reading other people that way. So it's a hot mess altogether, I, I admit it. However, However, it's not impossible to read people. 
So those are your two alternatives. I'm sure there are others. Why? Why is this the case? Why does not walking in your truth? Why is this so devastating? Why are the catastrophic results? And here's a formula that I think explains it. Trust, I mean truth, trust, connection, life. Here's the Christian explanation. Reality itself is God. There is nothing that exists outside of God. What we experience as life, it's birthed out of God. He is the origin of everything, the source. He is the head, as the Bible puts it. And without him, nothing exists. All things are from him and through him and to him. And God, the Bible teaches, is triune. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Reality is a relationship. It's community. And so you know that longing for community you have? You know how, you know, isolation is one of the most brutally punishing things we could ever do to each other? It's because God is triune. And we were birthed, we were made in the image of community. And so strong is our need to be connected to others. That's reality. That's what the Bible says. The thing, though, so here's a sequence. When there is truth, it leads to trust. And trust is the foundation for relationship or connection. And when there is connection, there is life. Truth leads to trust, leads to connection, which flows over into life. The opposite is this. Lies leads to disconnection, which means that now we have to invoke the law rather than relationship, which leads to death. So, you know, my best example you've heard is about marriage. If you lie in your marriage, what happens? What happens? You get disconnected, right? The trust begins to break down, and then you have to start invoking the law. Hey, you were supposed to. You should have. You said you would. Why didn't you? Right? We become law-oriented. When there's enough of a relational trust breakdown, then forget about invoking one or two laws. The whole relationship is based on laws. You've literally called a lawyer. And you're on your way to separate, having no relationship at all, through divorce. And that's the death of the relationship. And so these are the two alternatives in life. You walk in truth, you are truthful with yourself and with others around you, and that builds trust. And that leads to a relationship with that person. And then it's very life-giving. The alternative, you lie, you break the trust, it leads to disconnection, then you start invoking the law with each other, and then that's the death of the relationship. Two points of application, and then we close. The first is to normalize this. Normalize the battle for truth. Here's Dr. Stephen uh, Tying, or Ting, T-Y-N-G. This is all in the sermon notes that you can click on through the loop. Uh, it says this. He says this. There are no hypocritical Christians. There are just Christians. The hypocritical aspect is a given. When we read St. Paul's assessment of his own faith in Romans 7, 
I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. What we are reading is a concise statement on what it means to be an authentically neurotic Christian, aware of his or her own hypocrisy. We are powerless over ourselves. You know your battle for truth? It's really normal. Don't feel special about it. Actually, that's the lie that you're special. You're not. Everybody struggles. Just engage in it. Just enter into it. What's my battle today? What's my battle du jour? What's on the menu? Eat it. Eat humble pie that day. That's your humble pie for the day. You know, you engage in it. Just normalize it. The second is to get honest. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The best descriptor of the heart that the Bible uh, mentions is that it's, above all else, deceitful. There's a lot of self-deception in this room right now. A lot. The count is one for one. Every single person is highly deceived about who they are and what they are and how great or awful they are. We just don't know. And so we need an outsider's help. Say, God, help me to know what you're working on today. Help me to know what I should be paying attention to. Raise my awareness around the thing that you want to work on. Imagine God showed you all at once everything that was wrong with you. The Bible says that if you see God, you would die. I think that's why. The light of God would shine. You'd see everything, and he wouldn't kill you, but you'd kill yourself. Because how could you stand you when you see all that mess? Man, I have fallen into the conviction about a certain aspect of me, and I writhe in pain because I hate myself so much. That's one little thing. I don't even remember to give you an example of now. Imagine I saw everything all at once. And Paul says the same thing. You know, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and that's everyone's dilemma, and we ask for God's help. But this is the whole thing, folks. God sending Jesus, his son, to die for us, to create a love relationship based not on our trustworthiness, but on Christ. And he says, God, there with me. Let's, let's put away the law. Let's fulfill it. I fulfill the law. Let's get back into relationship. Let's enter into the process and walk in the truth together. And so Jesus gives us this invitation. Come to me all who are labor, who all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's our confession this morning that if we violate values that we have, then our life begins to feel chaotic, distorted, feels like it's spinning out of control. We confess that we lie and cheat and deceive and rationalize and justify. We will even put down other people and get angry with them to make sure that we are looking all right. 
the games we play, the, the tricks we employ. We are a wicked people. So God, search us and know us. Help us to normalize this battle. Help us to stop being disappointed in ourselves or feeling great about ourselves. Neither are true. Help us to have a sober week. Help us to track what you're tracking and to participate in the work you are already doing in our lives and all around us. We thank you that you are God and that we don't have to be. We look to you and we worship you because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.